0: For your support, it's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, August twelfth, twenty fifteen. We will be doing our light episode today as I continue to ramble my way through the book of Genesis, be talking a little bit about the aftermath of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah today, and wrestle with that thorny issue about the fact that Lot, you know, Abram's nephew, is called in the New Testament Righteous. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We actually take the time to open up our Bibles and put things back into context to compare with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed, self-styled prophets, prophetesses, that's with an F, not a PH, to see if what they're saying actually squares with what God's Word says, or if they're teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach, and teaching all kinds of weird non-biblical doctrines as if they're really doctrines. You know, machinations of their own mind, if you would. And part of the process of learning discernment is exposing yourself to good, sound, biblical exegesis. Hence, we uh, do our light episodes every day, and uh, we've been working our way through the book of Genesis. We call it Roseboro's Ramblings Through Genesis. Today, we, like I said, we're going to be talking about the aftermath of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and come to grips with how do we deal with the fact that the New Testament so clearly says that Lot, yeah, Lot, uh, is righteous. Yeah, how do you deal with that? Well, because um, clearly you can look at his life and you can sit there and go, that dude, he wasn't righteous. Right. And the fact is is that when you look at your own life and you compare your life to what God's word demands of you in his law, you know, look at the Ten Commandments if you're not sure, and uh, take a look at that and you sit there and go, well, how righteous are you? You go, well, you know, maybe I'm more righteous than Lot. But See, the thing is, is God's law demands that you keep it perfectly. You're either righteous or you're not righteous. You see, the law never grades on a curve. Yeah, it's not like as if, well, if you fall into the 50th percentile, right there in the center of the bell curve, then you're declared righteous. No, it's it's like being pregnant, right? You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. There's kind of no in-between there. And so, um, same with righteousness. You're either righteous or you're not. And if you're not living up to what God's law demands of you, then you ain't. So uh and you look at lots life and yeah especially in the aftermath of the uh, destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and you just sit there and go mm, yeah how do we deal with this fact that he's called righteous well that we're going to talk about imputed righteousness today on fighting for the faith as opposed to infused ra- uh, grace or infused righteousness so uh sit down enjoy yourself you know grab something to drink Put on your fuzzy bunny slippers. We're going to get right into it. Here's the next installment of Rosebro's Ramblings Through Genesis. Let's pray. Almighty God, the fount of all wisdom, by your Holy Spirit, enlighten those who teach and those who learn. The rejoicing in the knowledge of your truth, they may worship you and serve you from generation to generation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, we're going to finally finish up the uh, destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We spent quite a bit of time on this, kind of circling around topics, and then last week, if you remember, kind of drew a connection between modern-day America and uh, what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, and you know, left off on that politically incorrect note of making the note that the church has not been doing its job for a long time or at least many churches have not. They've decided in the name of relevance to abandon the mission that we've been given to proclaim Christ and Him crucified for our sins and to call sinners to repentant faith in Christ. As a result of it, the culture, which is full of people who are unbelievers, they are not going to bear the fruit of the Spirit in their lives because that's (laughs) what unbelievers do. Remember our text this morning, apart from me you can do nothing. We cannot expect virtue and... Um, godliness to be the predominant feel of the culture if the culture is outside of Christ. That's why if you really want to, quote-unquote, make a difference in the world, which is what a lot of people think the gospel is now, Jesus came to make a difference. Well, Hitler made a difference. You know, I'm going to do more than that. But if you want to, quote, make a positive difference in the world, then telling people that Jesus bled and died for them is uh, going to reap... All kinds of not only eternal benefits, but also temporally, you know, in people's lives. So we're going to continue. We're in Genesis chapter 19, 23 is where I'm at. I'll read a little bit and we'll go from there, and you can always ask questions along the way. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities. And all the valley, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground, But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. So tragic. So tragic. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Notice capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the Tetragrammaton, the, the divine name, Yahweh. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked... And behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace I, it I mean it's not a lot, but we all know what this what we're talking about here we We've all seen the smoke rising from a raging fire, you know and so in this particular case, we're talking about four five cities wiped off the face of the earth and the smoke rising up. It's just hmm. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived so there we got God again remembering it's an important theme in scripture is God's remembering and this is why in the Lord's Supper it's you got to remember that God's remembering too it's not just us thinking hard of Jesus died but God is remembering Christ's sufferings and death on our behalf and remembering that we are in Christ so that we are not swept away in His wrath. Now this is where the story gets a little bit awkward. This is not a fun story. I've never seen this next one used in a flannel graph in a Sunday school. (laughs) Does anyone remember the flannel graphs in Sunday school? Do they use those here? Yeah. So yeah, this is not one of those ones that they depict on the flannel graph, but it's in here. Okay, So we're going to have to uh, deal with this appropriately. Now keep in mind, we read last week that Lot had herdsmen. He was a very wealthy man. He has literally come out of Sodom and Gomorrah with the clothes on his back and his life. That's all he has. His wife is gone, and this kind of hints at some kind of Major like post-traumatic stress disorder, something to that effect. Um, and the reason why is because what follows next is not even rational. It's just not. And we'll, you know, we'll kind of get there, but let's, let me read. Now, Lot went up out of Zoar, and he lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So Lot gets out of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Zoar was one of these towns that God was originally going to destroy. It's originally going to destroy Zoar. But because that was the place where he begged that he could flee to rather than the hills, God did not overthrow Zoar. Zoar survived, and now Lot is there at Zoar, and he's terrified. He's really shaking in his boots. He's not about to hang out in Zoar for fear that that place is going to be overthrown and for fear of the wickedness of these people. So he separates himself. But listen to what is going on in the, in the minds of Wad um, and his daughters. The firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. What are you talking about? What, I mean, this is crazy talk. They just left Zoar, and somehow they 're acting like it 's the end of the world there 's nobody left on the earth. This is not rational that' we're, what we 're hearing here. This is like this is like post traumatic stress disorder working from an irrational something cracked here
1: I took it as if, if a woman her husband died or whatever, she had to go and be with her brother-in-law or her brothers that they could take care of. So no.
0: I no, this is not that kind of marriage. That's not what this is referring to. And, and the, the, the type of marriage you're talking about is in the Old Testament, and it's never a father with a daughter or father with a daughter-in-law. But, but look what it says. And there's not a man on earth. The Hebrew's is clear on this. There's not a man on earth. There's, no, there's nobody on the planet. To come into us. They think that they're like the sole survivors of the apocalypse or something. That's the way they're talking. Clearly all this fresh air out in the mountains has gone to their heads. Something, is, something ain't right. Our father's old. There's not a man on earth to come into in, to us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine. We will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. This is awful. Next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Both daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. If there was no, if
1: they thought there was nobody else on the face of the planet where right? they the
0: wine? They probably got the provisions from Zoar, brought them with them, so they're not thinking straight. Something's really screwy going on here, and this is this is a terrible, terrible, grievous sin that they have fallen into. And notice the way the story is told is that Lot really is not culpable about what's going on here, except for the fact that. He was listening to his daughters as far as... You know, Keep drinking, Dad. Keep drinking. Right? I think they've gone insane because of what they experienced. Yeah, I see that when you read the commentaries on this, and even Luther, the, everybody kind of agrees it, this is this may, in fact, be some kind of post-destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The event itself was so such a huge thing that they've got some kind of weird survival mentality going on here. This is not... This is not healthy thinking. This is not sane thinking. This is this is weird. Well, have those daughters lived in some? Oh, yeah.
1: So, you know, there again, it is very weird. However, that may
0: not have sounded as strange to them, having seen so much pervert. Yeah, right. Yeah. But their reasoning is totally off. It's like we're the only people alive on the whole planet. Yeah. yeah. The
1: thought was going to give them to the men.
0: Yeah, yeah, no. See, and this kind of shows you that even believers can really fall into grievous sins. It's not that they don't trust in the promises of God. It's not that they don't believe God. And and Scripture is in the New Testament is very clear that Lot is righteous. Yeah. So you know, but it's clearly not because he was a righteous dude, right? Lot is righteous because he, like us, is declared righteous. Does that make sense? Let's talk about that for a little bit here. Do you know that in many parts of Christianity, they don't believe in what's called the imputed righteousness of Christ. Instead, what they talk about, or the way they te- teach Christianity, it's an infused righteousness. Do you know, have you ever heard these terms before? Infused righteousness versus imputed righteousness. Okay, I'm going to spend a little bit of time working on that because I think this is going to help us to understand how it is that Lot in the New Testament is referred to as righteous Lot. This, I mean, seriously, what is going on? How can this guy be righteous, right? It's a scandal. And that's really kind of the thing. It really is a scandal. So let me pull my um, whiteboard up real quick here. And we're going to draw a line, we're going to call this one over here infused righteousness, and this one is going to be imputed. Here's how infused righteousness technically works. A great example of infused righteousness, at least a theological system that embraces this concept, would be Rome. So the idea is is that you're born... Every one of you is born with the darkness, the blackness of original sin on your soul. And to which we'd say, well, that's kind of right. And so you're baptized, and that baptism washes away all of your sins and original sin and and the blackness of original sin. And now it's up to you to make sure that your garments stay clean. Does that make sense? The idea in their system... Is that in their way of thinking, you know, what happens every week, every Sunday at a Catholic church is called the Mass. It's actually called the sacrifice of the Mass. The idea is that grace in their system is like jet fuel. And here's what you do you go to church, to the sacrifice of the Mass, and you get your stock of grace. Which is going to empower your life to mortify your sinful flesh and to curb sin out of your life, and then if you commit any venial sins along the way, those can be forgiven. But a mortal sin is a sin that knocks you out of the game altogether. You're going to hell if you die in a mortal sin. So then you kind of have to go through the you have to be you know forgiven and restored and things like that. And so every week you have these little sins that you're doing and you go to the mass in order to get your jet fuel which fuels it so that you can curb the sin out of your life and the idea is is that if you don't want to go to purgatory you have to really get serious about becoming perfect because you can't go to heaven directly after you die if you die and your soul is still you still haven't purged all the sin out of your life let's say you know some poor guy who you know owns a shoe shop in Grand Forks. And I mean the guy's, you know, you're standard ordinary. Joe, he goes to mass every every Sunday, but he's really not all that devout. So he doesn't say his Hail Marys and he doesn't pray the rosary and he he misses mass sometimes and rarely makes it to confession. But he lives the ordinary life of a guy, but he dies and he's still not really perfect. So what happens is is that he's going to spend we'll say conservatively 15, 20,000 years in purgatory being purged of the rest of his sins. And purgatory, by the way, is described much like hell. Flames of fire and things like that because you can't enter God's presence in the heavenly kingdom if you have any sin on you. So that has to be purged off you in the fires of purgatory. I'm not making this up. One of the ideas behind the indulgences, you remember the, the time of the Reformation, the story of Luther. Luther, the, you know, the 95 Theses, is written against indulgences. And one of the practices of indulgences, and this is how Tetzel would talk, he'd say, the, the soul, uh, when the coin in the coffer clings, a soul from purgatory springs. Apparently, the Pope at the time, when they were raising the funds to, ra- to, to build St. Peter's in Rome... This is the time of the Reformation. The Pope was offering a plenary indulgence where you can purchase the freedom of your dead relatives in purgatory. There's your grandma. She's in the flames of purgatory saying, please spare me from these fires. I'm in agony. Please, please buy an indulgence. Who, who of you would keep your grandmother in purgatory when right now you can spring her out? If only you would just buy this indulgence, it's this, an opportunity like this doesn't even come around once in a lifetime. Of course, part of the '95 thesis is, if you know, the Luther argued this, is that if the Pope has the ability, the authority to actually spring people out of purgatory. Why doesn't He, in His mercy, free everybody? Free of charge. Exactly. Can't do that. So the idea here is what we're describing is a theological system that is about infused righteousness. Righteousness is something... You have grace that's infused into your life and it's up to you to really clean up your act and make yourself righteous because what God has done by dying on the cross is give you the opportunity to earn your way into heaven. Any of you play golf? No, one, no one's a golfer here? Yeah, rarely. Okay, in golf, there's this... It's not a rule. It's actually against the rules, but there's this thing called a mulligan. Okay, you've heard of the mulligan? So what happens is you get up to the tee box, and of course, golf looks simple, but it's not. I mean, the ball isn't moving, it's not like they're pitching it at you. It's sitting there on a tee. All you got to do is hit it from there down there. No problemo. But the problem is, is that when if you don't get your mechanics right, you're going to hit that ball and it's going to go, it's got a lot of spin on it after it leaves the club head and it's going to fly off and slice into the woods. And there's, it's a terrible thing when that happens. So if you're on the tee box and you slice one into the woods, if you have merciful friends, who will allow you to bend the rules a little bit, they'll say, why don't you go ahead and re-tee that. We'll give you a mulligan. A mulligan is like a do-over, but it's really technically against the rules. If you're getting a mulligan, whose responsibility is it to make sure that you hit it right the second time? Yours. Here's the idea. Now, there are, no joke, evangelical pastors who I've reviewed who talk about this, they talk about the gospel as the gospel is the good news that Jesus is giving you a do-over. So God's going to give me another chance to get it right. Good luck. I've already messed that one up. It doesn't matter if God gave you 1 million do-overs, you still wouldn't get it right. Right? So the idea in theological systems where it's about the do-over or about God giving you the opportunity for you to purge the sin out of your life so that you can make yourself worthy to either go to heaven or avoid purgatory, things like that, right? That's all this idea of infused righteousness or infused grace. Grace becomes the fuel for you to curb out the sin in your life so that you make yourself worthy to go to heaven doesn't sound like much of a great deal, does it? There isn't much difference between what you just described in Rome versus historic Lutheran or Protestant pietism, legalism, except without purgatory. Yeah, that's right. Many strains of pietism in Protestantism is a lot like Roman Catholicism without the pretty liturgy and without purgatory. But it's still pretty much the same idea. You know, Jesus is giving you the opportunity to get your life together and get your, you know, get your act clean so that you can earn your way to heaven. That's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. There's such thing as mortal sins. Does that kind of mean like Jesus' sacrifice wasn't good enough to cleanse all sins? Yeah, see, that's the question. It does When you start talking about mortal and venial sins, you've got a problem. Because you're right, now all of a sudden it does some weird things with the atonement rather than Christ dying for the sins of the whole world and every sin. Well, if you can commit a mortal sin and that throws you out of the kingdom, then Christ really didn't truly die for that sin, did he? You've kind of put your finger on one of the issues. Here's where the Lutherans make the claim, and I think they're right. Lutherans make the claim that there are only two religions in the world. There are really, truly only two. There is one religion that takes on many forms, but at the end of the day, each of those different forms or manifestations all are part of the same religion. And that one religion is the religion that says, if you want to go to heaven, then you have to earn it. You have to merit it. And you merit it either through your sanctification, your good works, or or you know curbing the sin out of your life but one thing's for sure bad people don't go to heaven so you got to be you got to become good Does that make sense The other religion says that you are by nature sinful sin is not something that's punctilior Punctiliar means is that you're not a sinner because you sin Sin is a condition that manifests itself in many different ways. So when you commit a sin, you prove that you are a sinner. Does that make sense? So you can't somehow say, I've stopped sinning, therefore I'm no longer a sinner. Does that make sense? All right, let's say I'm going to wave my magic wand. Okay? I wave my magic wand, and as of this moment, until the moment you die, you will never sin again. Suspend your disbelief. I, I wait. This is a bamboo stylus, it has some major power to it. I'm waving my bamboo stylus. You will not sin from this moment on until the day you die. Are you still a sinner? Yes, you are. Whether you sin or not, you are still a sinner. This is why in our confession, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. Therefore, in order to be saved, God has to save you 100%. He has to raise you from the dead, and He has to supply the righteousness that is lacking for you to be saved. In one system, it's merited. Salvation is merited. In the other system, salvation is granted purely by God's grace as a gift. Infused. Infused is you earning it by becoming righteous. Now, we're going to spend a little bit of time in some texts so that we can make sure that we've, we understand where Scripture is coming from. Because here we've got this scandalous story, and yet the New Testament obnoxiously keep saying that Lot is righteous. How can this be? Lord, protect us from such evils as what Lot went through, right? Romans 3. We've gone over this text a couple of times, but I want to go back over this with the view of imputed righteousness so you can see what's going on. Romans 3, verse 9 is where we'll start. Here's what it says. What then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, they are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Anyone here righteous? I'm not. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. The paths in Their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now that's each and every one of us before Christ has literally regenerated us and raised us from the dead. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable. God, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in His sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now the important word here is justified. Does anyone remember last time we went through this passage? What justified means? Just as if I'd never sinned. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> That's, I learned that in confirmation. Yes, it is. That's a good way to describe it. That's actually a description, not a definition, but you're right. It's just as if I've never sinned is a good way to describe what this word means. But let's talk about what the word itself means from the Greek. Does anyone remember what that is? Faith? Uh-huh. Okay. I've opened this up. The Greek word is dikai-a-o, and I'm going to show you something here. This is important. Okay, so by works uh, by by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. Now, this is the Greek verb dikaio, and the way it's being used in this sentence, it's a verb, future, means in the future will be declared righteous, and it's passive, which means it's not something you've earned, it's something that's being declared about you. Does that make sense? If it were active then the sentence wouldn't make sense. But because it's passive, this justification is being done to you, being said about you. But it's not something that you are doing. You're receiving the verdict. So, the way it works is the way this verb works. It's a court turn. You go to court. You've been accused of stealing horses. Of course, you know and so you're on trial in warren in front of the magistrate as a, being tried for being a horse thief right and everybody knows that uh, if the if the magistrate finds you guilty they're going to hang you you know from the bridge in warren right yeah <laughs> you have a defense attorney there's the prosecuting attorney Mr. magistrate i did not steal those horses guy says no you did steal those horses and then wouldn't you know it w- right in the middle of the trial somebody shows up with the horses and they had just been lost and it's true you did not steal them <sighs> what happens is because the evidence shows that you did not steal the horses the magistrate puts the gavel down and if this were the ancient world he would say de gaio declared not guilty righteous you're righteous that's what he would say all right we're going to pause right there pay some bills if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of fighting for the faith you can do so my email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on facebook facebook.com forward slash pirate christian follow me on twitter my name there at pirate christian quick break when we come back, the balance of today's Roseboro's ramblings through Genesis as we deal with the aftermath of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for
1: the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. Deep in the Australian wilderness, and also the typhoid infested waters of the Bongo River, Captain Worthington and his ragtag group of men have found themselves to be hopelessly lost. Surrounded by the vicious savages of the Hamuku tribe, and now the TP has run out. It's been 27 days without food, and Private Jenkins doesn't care. Oh, do shut up, Nigel! We don't need you narrating every little thing that goes on. It's bad enough already, we don't need you reminding everyone about it. Sorry. Now, gentlemen, the hour is dire. There's not much hope of us getting out of this predicament with our lives. or sanity. What are we going to do, Captain? Well, we can do one of two things. We can either die in a blaze of glory, charging the Hibuku tribe in battle, or we'll sit on the riverbank saying to ourselves, Oh, Mommy, Mommy, please make the bad people go away. I vote for the second one. Shut the noise, you pansy! Now, Captain, I have an idea that might just save our hides from the impending doom on the other side of the tree line. Well, out with it, man. Out with it. I happen to have... In my possession, a copy of Zondervan's latest book, The Grimoire of Modern Prayer. Well, that's excellent news. We have TP again. Ah! Ah! Woo-hoo. No, 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 we're not using it for that. Then what exactly are we using it for? Uh, it says this With this volume, you can command and control the very will of God with relative ease. Oh. Oh. Uh, oh, yeah. Are you sure we can do that? Well, the, the book says we can. Is there any proof? Well, Stephen Furtick did write the introduction where he explains how it's changed his life. Well, um, h- how does it work? Simple. We can choose from any one of these prayers. <laughs> Cap <C-C-C-C-C-C-Cat> Morthington. <sighs> A book Approaching! Tra- a- Blasted! Perkins, get your act together and start reading from the book. It's our only chance. I don't know which one to read first. Uh, which ones do you have to choose from? Well, there's the uh, scenting Prayer, the Circle Maker Prayer, the Prayer of Jabez. L- the Circle One. Let's go with that one. Okay, the book says to draw a circle around what you're praying for. Well, that's us. Quick, men, draw a circle in the dirt around us. Step two, begin to pray for whatever it is that you're in need of. I really want a Ferrari. A Ferrari. You nitwit, we need protection. Now pray audaciously. Oh! Lord, we are not going to leave this circle until you rescue us from our enemies. Amen. Thank God, Nigel! Are you sure? Pretty sure. Unless he can breathe without his head being attached to his neck. Oh, dear. Well, there goes our narrator. What are we going to do, sir? Well, the circle player didn't work, so let's try something else. Packin'! Working on it, sir. I, I think I got it. <laughs> I, I don't believe it's a, the the humbugger drive. They now have catapults. Jumping Jehoshaphat. This next prayer had better work, Perkins. This one will work. It's the uh, it's the sunset prayer. What good will that do? It's in the middle of the night. It doesn't matter what you think. This is sure to work. We just have to have audacious enough faith to ask God for the impossible. You heard the man get praying. I still want a Ferrari, a pet Raptor, no gets. Ooh, and better sex? You're just not getting this, are you? C- 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 Captain, they... 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 K K K
0: This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Morning. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor never teaches God's word with any depth. Or worse, he's preaching that the gospel is a second chance or a mulligan. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world, and you can partner with us by visiting our website fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That's a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344 Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 582 Two oh eight. Let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Here is the balance of today's Rosebros ramblings through Genesis as we talk about the aftermath of uh, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and how do we reconcile this idea that Lot in the New Testament is called righteous. Here we go. So what's going on here in this text then? For by works of the law, no human being will be Declared not guilty, declared righteous. For by works of the law, no human being will be declared righteous in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, the other system is totally wrong. And the reason why the other system is totally wrong is because they believe that God's grace just gets you in, and it's up to you, by keeping the law and doing good works to earn your way to heaven. But it says, by works of the law, no human being will be declared righteous in God's sight. law was never given for you to climb the ladder into heaven and make yourself worthy before God. The purpose of the law was to show you that you don't measure up, that you are guilty. The law says guilty, but the gospel says not guilty. For the sake of Christ. And here's why. But now, the righteousness of God. Diakosune theu. This of God is a possessive genitive. Whose righteousness is this? It's God's. It's not yours. But the righteousness of God has been manifested, or you could say revealed, Notice what it says, apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it, the righteousness of God, that is, through faith in Jesus Christ. Whose righteousness is it? God's. Who's it given to? It's given to those who have faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are, there's that word again, declared righteous, justified by His grace as a gift. Through faith, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what then becomes of our boasting? It's out the window. It's excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified, there it is again, not guilty, by faith apart. Notice what it says apart from works of the law. Works of the law have zero bearing on your righteousness by faith. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and he then circumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? No. No. By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified, there's that word again, declared righteous by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted or credited to him as righteousness. Do you all think that Abraham's a righteous dude? The idea about denying that his wife is his wife, which almost got her literally like had to sleep with somebody that wasn't her husband. Do you think that makes him righteous? And the whole Hagar thing? He's, not, he's a sinner just like you and I. And yet it says Abraham believed God and it was counted or credited to him as righteousness now to the one who works his wages are not counted as a gift but as due but the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies declares righteous the ungodly his faith is counted as righteousness so when we talk about the difference between infused righteousness or infused grace versus imputed righteousness is this talking about infused or imputed it's imputed And how do we know this? Because it's counted. It's credited. You have a perfect right relationship with God and are perfectly righteous in God's sight because you, by faith, believe in the promises that Christ bled and died for your sins. And so God's righteousness is credited or counted to you by faith. Now, when we talk about imputation, there's two aspects to it. There's an exchange that takes place. How many sins did Jesus commit? Why did he die? Well, the wages of sin is death. He just said Jesus didn't sin. How is it possible for somebody who did not sin to die? He took and put it on. Yeah, Who put it on Jesus? God the Father laid it on Jesus. Let's go back to Isaiah 53. Pay attention to what's going on there in Isaiah 53. And remember this morning, the first reading from the book of Acts, Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch, we have the story the guy's in a chariot. He's heading out of Jerusalem, heading back to Ethiopia. And God, the Holy Spirit, tells Philip, Go and quick, get up there and talk to that guy. So the guy's in the chariot. Philip can hear him, and what is he doing? He's reading out loud from the Isaiah scroll which means the guy has money because those things cost a lot of money. So he's... (laughs) So, you know, what you reading? Oh, I'm reading about this suffering servant. And he reads part of Isaiah 53. And he says, do you know who that's about? Well, how can I unless somebody guides me, he says, right? Then it says this, starting with that passage, Philip explained to him all of the things about Jesus. Today, modern... Jews, who do they think Isaiah 53 is about? They think it's about Israel. They think it's about the people of Israel. But who does the New Testament reveal Isaiah 53 is about? Jesus. Scripture interprets Scripture. So we know because of our text this morning from the book of Acts that Isaiah 53 is about Jesus. So let's take a look at it. Jesus, surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted, and he truly was. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Whose? Ours. He was crushed for our iniquities. How is this possible? He didn't commit those sins. How can he be punished for them if he didn't commit them? text says, Upon him was the chastisement, or you can say punishment, that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And here it is. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In other words, there's Christ. And y'all remember how the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, how that works out? in the Old Testament with the scapegoat? The one day of atonement every year. And what they would do is they'd, the high priest, he would take his hands and would put them on top of the scapegoat and he would lay on the scapegoat all of the sins of Israel. Now, was he really doing that? That was type and shadow. But here, now we see this. The Lord, Yahweh, has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. That is an imputation. Jesus is counted as the sinner. God is reckoning all of our sins to Jesus. That's a form of imputation. Our sins are imputed to Christ. So let's go back to our our graphic here. Jesus has... All of his righteousness, his perfect, sinless, spotless righteousness. And by faith in him, his righteousness is given to us. Our part of the equation is this. That is the only contribution we have in this equation. And this is all laid on Christ. So when we talk about imputed righteousness, we are talking about a double imputation. God imputes to Jesus all of our sin, and by faith, God imputes all of Christ's righteousness to us. Now I want you to think about this. Scripture says, The prayers of a righteous man availeth much. Now how many of you have ever read that passage and go, I wish I were a righteous man because my prayers just seem so weak. Have you ever had that thought? I have. Now, rethink it in light of this. You are righteous. You have been declared righteous. You are clothed in Christ's perfect, sinless righteousness by faith You have believed God, and God has counted it to you as righteousness. So I don't get to hear any of you ever say again, my prayers are so weak. The prayer of a righteous man or woman availeth much. You are righteous. Pray. There is no boasting in this then. There's no boasting at all. We're all beggars. That's what we all are. Naked, bruised, bleeding, shameful, dirty. And Christ has taken all of that upon Himself. Now let me show you another passage, just so you don't think I'm making this up. This is one of those things that it just sounds way too good to be true. Could it possibly be? Yeah, it can be. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And by the way, if you ever want to kind of remember major passages that deal with the gospel. Romans 3, Galatians 3, Philippians 3. It's funny how that worked out. Just remember those three, and you'll be you'll you can immediately get to the gospel pretty quick. So we're in Philippians chapter 3 and you'll notice the apostle paul clearly has a problem with being politically correct. He's going to do a little bit of name calling here and that just doesn't fly well in certain circles but they're just going to have to get over this. This is god-breathed scripture. <laughs> no, I don't I just think it's great. Paul says this, finally my brothers, rejoice in the lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and it is safe for you. Now watch what he does here. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Who's he talking about? The circumcision party, the Judaizers who say unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Paul calls them dogs and mutilators of the flesh. <laughs> yeah, this would be all over Twitter today. you know <laughs> it, has to hashtag Paul's a jerk, you know right. <laughs> So he says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, well, I have more. And now Paul is going to give us his pedigree under the Mosaic Covenant. Now watch this. In the Mosaic Covenant, law, 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 no gospel. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. Our Bibles are so sanitized. The Greek word for rubbish is scuba And basically, think of it as a big, fresh, stinky cow patty in your yard. That's what Scubalon is. What does he count them? I count them as rubbish. What is he counting as rubbish? All of his works under the Mosaic Law. He counts them all as Scubalon. Watch this. In order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Infused or imputed? Imputed. Imputed. Paul has basically said, all of my righteousness is dung, and I want to be found in Christ not having a righteousness of my own. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see it? I don't have a righteousness of my own. I have the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that is from God. It is the righteousness of God, it's God's righteousness imputed to me, counted to me, as if I'm the one who earned it, all by grace through faith as a gift. You don't need a mulligan. You'd mess it up if you were given it. Christ knew that. So Christ didn't give you a mulligan. Here's the analogy. Y'all, you're not familiar with with golf courses, but in New York, there is a golf course called Bethpage Black, and they play the U.S. Open there from time to time. And it is epically difficult. It's so difficult that... Somebody who is not a professional, who's a scratch golfer. That means they don't have a handicap. If they were to play Beth Page Black, they'd be lucky, lucky if they were able to get off the golf course 12, 14 over. They'd be shooting in the 80s. It's that hard of a course. Okay? So here's how the m- metaphor would work. Rather than a mulligan, here's the idea. You have one chance... One chance to earn your salvation, and here's what you need to do. You have to pet play Beth Page Black. From the professional's tees, with a 40-mile-an-hour wind, and lightning and thunder going on at the same time, and the devil is going to not be cheering for you. He and all of his demons are going to be on the side of the golf course in your gallery, screaming at your face to make it so you can't focus. And if you don't score par or better, you're going to hell. (laughs) So you get up to the first tee, you take your first shot, you slice it off in the woods, and the devil says, no problem, we'll give you a mulligan. Is that going to make a difference? It's not going to make a difference. A do-over isn't going to help you. You need something amazing to happen. And so here's what happens. Jesus Christ steps up to the tee, puts his ball down, and he hits the ball, lands it perfectly on the fairway. Next shot, lands on the green. Holes out for birdie. First hole. Thanks. Yeah. Well, we, we, we got to keep this within reason here, okay? <laughs> but he does this with each and every hole. And... He comes in, he's got a perfect, clean scorecard, even under those conditions, and here's what he does He says, Give me your card. He signs yours, and he gives you his. That's imputed righteousness. It's not a do over. That's grace. That's mercy. That's forgiveness. And you know what? Nobody can take that out of your hands. That's what's given to you in the waters of your baptism. That's what's given to you at the the altar when we have the Lord's Supper. That's what's given to you in the absolution over and over again. Christ's perfect righteousness. Not a righteousness of your own. You no longer have to fear the devil and the ragings of the demons of hell. You will never hear God say, Away from me, I never knew you. Instead, all of this is given to you by grace, through faith, as a gift, and no one can take it from you because the one who gave it to you is the most powerful being in the whole universe. There is no being more powerful than God. There is no appeals court to His court. And He has declared you righteous. You see the difference? Now, With all of this in mind, even in the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints, as sinful as they were, they were saved by grace through faith. They were saved by looking forward to the promises. We're saved by looking backwards to the promises. Does that make sense? And now can you see why, even though Lot and his daughters fell into just grievous, awful, difficult-to-read sin, icky sin, that he's still in the New Testament referred to as righteous Lot because he wasn't righteous in and of himself. He's righteous the same way you and I are because that righteousness was given to him as a gift by God. All right, we'll see you next week. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ's vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.